What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. During this month, August 2020, the Burn It All Down crew is taking some time off to rest and retool the show. In place of our regular weekly Tuesday episodes, we are bringing you episodes from shows hosted by guests of Burn It All Down. We hope you enjoy, and we'll be back soon. And as always, burn on, not out. Hey Flamethrowers, Amir here, and it is my pleasure to intro the next special guest episode of Burn It All Down this week with Erica Ayala and her work on social justice and women's basketball. Now, if you are a long-term Flamethrower, then of course Erica is no stranger to you at all. But for those who don't know, can you tell the people about yourself? Sure thing. And first, thank you, Amira, and of course, the whole BED family for having me back. Always, always a pleasure. But uh, yeah, I'm Erica. I'm here in New York, living this quarantine life. I have been writing sports writing for about five years now, come from the nonprofit background, from a nonprofit background. And in this time in American history in particular, I have found a really unique way to blend those two paths, and I'm really excited about that. When you talk about blending those two paths, what does that manifest into? What does that look like with your work in general? What is it focusing on now? What I'm doing is having conversations with athletes. Although I do talk to Black athletes and athletes of color, I also really have prioritized bringing white athletes into conversations about social justice, particularly when it comes to race equity. It started actually in the hockey space, and there was a hockey player in the NWHL who tweeted something that for her was very personal, but was also very ignorant to what was happening in, in Minneapolis. And from there, Ali Thunstrom and Blake Bolden and I had a conversation. And so my ability, or what I hope comes through in this series, Social Justice in Women's Sports, is that my work in the nonprofit field and in advocacy allows me to see this as an issue that is a human rights issue and not as an issue that is political. And my work in sports, especially in women's sports, I hope, allows me to bring an angle of a sport or a sports community that feels underserved and to bring those two things together to have a conversation about even whilst being in an underserved community, you can still uplift and have a, an, a responsibility to uplift the humanity of everyone, um, not just in your immediate space, but in your community and in the world. Love it. Absolutely love it. For this project that we're going to hear a little bit of today, what can people be expected to hear? What um, is this clip about? So this is social justice in women's basketball. And from hockey, I've ventured out into other sports just because we've seen the conversation play out in so many different sports. And this one is special to me because I get to talk about the WNBA. I 
wanted to root my conversation in social justice and women's basketball in the history of black women in social justice movements. There's a subtitle to this one called Freedom's Daughters 2020. And that comes off of a book by Lynn Olson that highlights women, black women in social movements, in advocacy movements as early as 1830 in her book. And I really wanted to play with timelines here because the WNBA again is doing so much in the social justice space as they always have but also their efforts are underappreciated and undervalued and there is historical context to that and I wanted to uplift that while also challenging white WNBA players to use the space that they hold in the WNBA to continue this conversation. And so in this clip, you'll hear from Diana Taurasi, you'll hear from Sue Bird, and you'll hear from them from over a year ago. They know very well that the racial makeup and just the makeup overall of the WNBA is very unique and in a lot of ways is difficult for a mainstream media to digest and to market properly. I think that we're seeing now a year later from me speaking to them in this clip that the WNBA yet again has found a way to unify and to make their message not just consistent, but also to push the conversation forward. In this clip, it's a kind of a primer, perhaps I should say, for people who are not familiar with the WNBA and again, the historical parallels that Black women have and how we're seeing that play out in the WNBA. Yes, come through history. Could we ask for something more timely? I think not. How can the people find you? How can the people see your work? Drop your social media handles. Yes, thank you so much. So you can follow me on social media, Instagram and Twitter mostly at elindsay08, E-L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-08. And this series that I'm doing, again, and now I've expanded to different women's sports, but social justice and women's sports, you can find that on YouTube. And that is at Sports Talk with Erica Lindsay Ayala, Sports Talk with E-L-A. Awesome. Well, flamethrowers, get into it. This is Social Justice and Women's Basketball with Erica Ayala. It was actually my agent, uh, Lindsay Colas's son, Little Drew. It was his crayons. We were at a vegan restaurant in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and we literally just had a menu and we were just jotting down notes of things that we thought that were plausible, that were going to be good for us. Um, and the next day, we literally sat down with Carol Callen, Jim Tooley, um, brought that piece of paper. They looked at it. We looked at the things that could work, that just didn't make sense. Um, and that's all USA basketball, because they could easily just shut it down. We'll get together, you know, a month before the Olympics and do what we usually do. So they took initiative, which um, is what we need people to do. Take initiative, right? We talk about sponsorship money. We talk about these Fortune 500 companies. Um, you know, we talk about supporting women, but, you know, where where is that coming from? Where is that coming from? Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special edition of Social Justice in Women's Basketball this week. This series started off as Social Justice in Women's Hockey, and that's the sport that I will follow the most. But I wanted to take time out this week to talk about women's basketball, more specifically the WNBA. Let's get into the episode. I opened the episode with a clip from Diana Taurasi. I 
was able to speak to Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird, who, as the legend goes, uh, drew up the plans for a more coordinated effort by the U.S. by USA Basketball and the WNBA to keep certain players from USA Basketball in the domestic market in the offseason. I'm going to play you a few clips from there. From, from those interviews, I should say. This was at the 2019 All-Star Game, All-Star Weekend in Las Vegas. I think it's it's a fascinating concept. And at the time of that it was announced, it got me thinking a lot about soccer and the soccer model that we see in the United States on the women's side. Uh, also, shout out to Bria Felician and Kelsey Trainer, who joined me on the last episode of Social Justice in Women's Soccer. Anyway, um, we have always in this country, since women's soccer really began to come on the map in the 90s, have seen the U.S. women's soccer team, even in their struggle for equal pay, their struggle for a domestic league, They've been a national part of the conversation. And hindsight is 2020. You know, I was a young, impressionable child, not as plugged into the news as I am now as an adult. So perhaps that's the lens that I see it through in hindsight. But even in hindsight, history has its eyes, if you will. Shout out to the Hamilton fans. History has its eyes on the U.S. women's national team in a way that eyes have never been fixated on women's basketball or the WNBA that next year celebrates 25 seasons, consecutive seasons. And I have some theories as to why we're going to get into some of those, but uh, this week I'm dedicating all of these episodes to freedom fighters, to social justice activists and leaders. If you haven't listened to Gotta Get Up, which is my women's basketball show primarily, well, it's supposed to be focused on the New York Liberty, um, but I'm getting just so much wobble content that I didn't want to leave anyone out. So I have an episode, the latest episode here that I dedicated to uh, three men, including one who... I had the pleasure of working alongside. Um, but so I want to open this episode uh, reading from Freedom's Daughter, the unsung heroines of the civil rights movement from 1830 to 1970. This is by Lynn Olson. This is from chapter two uh, that is about Ida B. Wells. Uh, the quote is, she has shaken this country. Um but here we go. I want to read this because I think it's apropos to what I want to talk about on this episode. In their activism, they were following the example of early 19th century female forebearers. And their example, in turn, would be followed by their daughters, granddaughters, and great-granddaughters in the 20th century. I think that women's voluntary organizations have been in the forefront for whatever social change there is, Dorothy Height longtime president of the National Council of Negro Women, declared in the 1970s. The fact that this is a male-dominated society, indeed a white male-dominated society, means that males are so involved in the systems and institutions 
that they don't feel the need to do anything to bring about change. As a black woman, I would have to say that it's been the women who have dared to tackle the racial issues. This is from Dorothy Height in 1970, and this rings true and has been ringing true since at least 2016 when it comes to domestic basketball. And that's why I want to lead this conversation. Let me preface. The conversation that I want to have today is an exploration of the interesting position that the WNBA is in. On the one hand, the WNBA is a league that is made up of 80% of women who are black and that identify as black. When we're seeing this new wave, you know, we say new wave, but it's a, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing fight for for freedom. And in this book, what I love about it is that it breaks down, again, it's Freedom's Daughters. It breaks down all of the ways that women, all, all women, um, have been fighting for freedom and for equity. But it also shows the rift between women and that black women are usually the first Black women are usually the first responders, but the last to reach equality. And I was talking to Sue and Diana as we saw the Women's World Cup coming up. There were all these partners with Hulu and Budweiser. We've seen those partnerships continue now to the Challenge Cup where Budweiser is the title sponsor for the the semifinals. There was a game that was on earlier today, one tonight, Sky Blue versus Chicago. Um, we've never seen that happen for women's basketball. And it is it can definitely be argued that if we were to divvy dollars based on merit, that all of our women's national teams would be more, better funded than our men's teams but that there probably should be no in there should be no national team that is funded better than our women's basketball team and that's just not the case and i think the theory that i have is and i played a little bit from diana and you'll hear from her and sue bird in a moment is that it is a league of 80 percent black women so going back to this book freedom's daughters it's very commonplace to have black women initiate the work, to do the brunt of the work, and to continue the work throughout, as we, as again, was just in that passage from their daughters to their granddaughters to their great granddaughters, and to still not reach that equity, that freedom, that equality. What does this mean for the WNBA, Erica? Here's the truth, and it's also in this book. Society has proven time after time that they're not going to listen to black women. Society has also proven time and time again that black women already have the ideas. What we need are for white women, black men, and white men to listen to black women and elevate and promote and fund and support our ideas 
we know how to fix this because we've been going through this, okay? But it requires everyone to be educated, everyone to position themselves to reach out to people that don't identify the way they do and to reach out to people that are outside of their immediate circle in order to push the agenda forward. And I think that's exactly what we've seen with Angel City. Los Angeles, where the concrete meets the coast, where talent meets triumph, a city defined by its citizens and powered by their dreams, a place that moves the world. And what better time is there to move than now? Welcome to a new era of sport and entertainment, unapologetic, undeniable, unstoppable. That's who we are because that's who the city is. Bright lights and brighter stars. This is the place. This is the time. The global sport in the global city. Coming together, we're naturally destined to be bigger than the game. Rewriting the script, righting the wrongs, building a women's football club that lives up to the name. Angel City. And you're a part of it. Part of driving change forward. Welcome to the beginning. Angel City FC. Now, you've got Natalie Portman, you've got Alexis Ohanian, or Serena's husband, Uh, you have Olympia, Uh, Serena Williams, Um, so many names, such a long list of names attached to this new women's professional sports team in L.A., and I've seen on Twitter, I've felt it myself, and I had a conversation with someone, a very, at least on my end, a very passionate uh, conversation about why we're not seeing this in the WNBA. And honestly, I think it boils down to marketing, and marketing is inherently um, impacted um, by racism. That's that's the bluntness. Um and I don't think there's any getting around that. So, but don't take my word for it. Hear what Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird have to say. Both of these are audio clips. Um, they were taken after the announcement that USA Basketball and the WNBA were going to partner to keep to core essentially eight players, 12 total national team players, Um stateside so that they don't have to travel overseas to make money and can promote the league here. So this is from last July, about a year ago. And Diana Taurasi, or excuse me, Sue Bird first, and then Diana Taurasi. I I do wonder, uh, a lot of people question whether because of the makeup of a women's basketball team, in in all ways, in race, in in obviously gender, but also... No, I mean, listen, I think whenever I'm asked about what's... What's, what are the you know uh, obstacles? The we we'll use the WNBA because that's the business, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, that's building a business. Um, you know, what are some of the obstacles? It's like, you know, we, we we dance around some things that that are important and, and are obstacles. You know, you could guess, right? Like whether it's the travel conversation that just happened. Oh, this is an issue. Or we need to do that. But at the end of the day, and this is something I've always said, we live in a society where you know. People are racist. People are homophobic, and and our our league is is extremely diverse in those categories, and that's pretty much our, like, as you said, our makeup. Yeah. And so that is that is an obstacle. You know, it's it's at times the elephant in the room, but that is an obstacle. Um, but again, I think 
now is the time. You know, when you think about just what's going on in, in our country, now is the time to, um, I don't know, support us, I think, because of what we represent, but also for us to use this platform and use our voices because of who we are and what we're representing. It seems like the, the national team in soccer has really made a mm-hmm. point to have what they get at the national team trickle to right. the league. Right. Do you see this when you were writing up on that crayon? Yeah. Was that part of the vision? Well, you know, it's been, f- it's, it's, you know, it's hard to compare, um, you know, I don't know how long the soccer league's been around for. Not very long, right? For this is the seventh season. Seventh longest, season, but a three different iterations. Right. right. So I mean, they've had their trouble keeping the, the leagues alive, th- even throughout the the women's soccer team's success. Um, and you know, with success, it's can you sustain it? That's always been the tricky part. You know, can the soccer league sustain it? You know, after there's no World Cup, and that is the one thing that the WNBA has been able to do is be successful not using the you know the national team as a, as a, as a balancing board so um, i think there's some good synergy and you know hopefully this makes that relationship a little bit better and stronger and another thing i mean the women's basketball team is is i think our most successful mm-hmm. national team right. program um, but that hasn't always come with the exposure well if we don't if we don't talk about how this country views leagues differently. Um, that would be a mistake, and that would be very ignorant. I mean, we're obviously a league of diversity, of uh, minorities, of you know, uh, gay women, uh, and that is not something easy for the United States um, to talk about. Um, certainly not easy for them to support, obviously. Um, you know, uh, and then you see the women's national team. You see the makeup of that team pretty clearly. Uh, you know, and these are conversations we have very openly. Like these aren't, you know, it's taboo to talk about it to reporters because you know it's these touchy subjects. But as players around the league, we we know what the facts are and, and they're in our face. Um, and it's how do we use all those things to our advantage? Um, I think in the past the WNBA has hidden things that now are things that you know people want to fight for and you know are things that people want to really get behind. Sue and Diana, and you'll hear from Brianna Stewart later. They have these conversations. They're very aware and and cognizant of the bias that exists in in how women's basketball is marketed. Women's basketball players know this. And I'm going to address something and then explain to you why I'm having you hear from the the white these white women in the league. Now, there's a piece of me that finds it very interesting that generally speaking, the more well-known USA basketball players, WNBA players, regardless of how many championships they have, how many MVPs that they've won, et cetera, et cetera, how successful their team is. The overwhelming majority of the the most popular WNBA players are white. The U.S. women's national team is overwhelmingly white. That's that racism in marketing, overt, covert, implicit, Um, bias that exists. But what I think is important is, again, for those women to utilize their platform and to speak for the group and not necessarily as themselves. And that could be hard. And there will be some things that the spokespeople enjoy as opposed to those who are not. 
But I think in this particular case, I want you to hear from white players. And this hopefully will be a longer conversation because in case you can't tell, I have a lot to say about this. But I wanted to start with Stewie and Sue and Diana because I want you to hear them tell you that there's a racial bias, that there's a gender bias, and that that bias also extends to the fact that the WNBA generally speaking, um, they have embraced the WNBA um, as a culture, as a league, right? Um, is very well represented on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. This is nothing new to WNBA players. Diane and Sue saying last year, you know, this is something that we talk about all the time that we don't necessarily talk about in media. Well, now is the time to talk about it in media. But I want you to hear that these white women have been talking about this for at least a year. The next clips that you'll hear will be from Stewie, Brianna Stewart, and again from Diana Taurasi. And this is while they're in the wobble. Um, and so Social Justice Council has already been put into place, etc. I specifically asked Stewie the question that I am really grappling with. On the one hand, we want allies to step up, to use their voice. Uh, we also want allies, this is the general we, right? Um, there's, a, there's a call for allies to step up and speak up. There's a call for allies to sit back and learn and let the voices of black people um, and black communities be heard. And I think that neither of those can be blanketed. I think there are times when the black community needs to be uplifted and what needs to happen is that those with white privilege in particular, but any privilege, those with privilege need to make space. Um, I also think there's a time when you have to hold white players in this case to task. Ask. I've been on a lot of these Zoom calls. Uh, the Zoom circuit is what I like to call it. It's not very often that white players from the calls that I've been on are asked about the Social Justice Council. Almost every black player has been asked about the Social Justice Council. Everyone in the WNBA, it's widely accepted that the WNBA players are on board with the Social Justice Council. So why is it that an overwhelmingly white male media core is only asking black women about the social justice council. They should be asking all players. That's, that's where I'm coming from. That's my take. So to begin my social justice in women's basketball series, you are going to hear from white players first. And that's counter to what I believe on the other side, which is a general issue that the WNBA has, which is that we only hear from white players. But in this case, I think it's important to hear from white players. Thank you so much. Uh, Stewie, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about the Social Justice Council. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, your petitioning for Black Lives Matter on the court is probably one of the more obvious reasons that you were selected. But I'd like to just ask you, uh, what was the lead up to officially being named as one of the players? for yeah. that um and then also just to follow up to that um you know this league is overwhelmingly made up of uh, black and brown players but i'm curious as the conversation outside of the WNBA really asks allies to step up what do you feel is the appropriate level of um of engagement for for players like yourself that don't identify as black in these conversations 
Yeah. Um, so the Social Justice Council, um, as we were leading up to, to going into the bubble, we knew that there was going to be a lot more happening um, in this bubble besides us just playing basketball. You know, we're, we're going to be using our platform in, in a bigger way than just our sport. Um, obviously, with um, all the, the social injustice and, and everything that's been going on, um, there was there was things that we needed to do better, and there was things that we need to continue to stand up and uh, kind of figure out how we wanted to use our platform. And that's where the Social Justice uh, Council came about. And Lasia actually um, asked me to be on it. And um, you know, I'm a person I just want to uh, stand up for what's right. And I believe uh, there's there's no room for for racism in this country. I mean how uh, Natasha Cloud put it in the Players' Tribune article was kind of the best way that I can, I can see it is, you know, we're in 2020 and you think that we should have flying cars, you know? We shouldn't be ha having to deal with the racism and the racial injustice in this country. So the fact that Leisha, um asked me to be a part of it, I was, I was more than honored. And, you know, I know that my platform goes beyond myself as a basketball player. And the second part of the question, um, I think, you know, the what I can do best is <clears throat> obviously, like you said, continue to be an ally. You know, this league is 80% of um, black females and we know that. And I think we're, we're embracing that and we, um, I mean, we've we've always been the league that's that's really been here first, you know, talking about um, issues that are that are important and close to us. And for me, I'm gonna just continue to be an ally, continue to use my voice, continue to educate myself, educate the people around me, and also know that, you know, I have a big spotlight on me, and I'm white, but I can also pass the mic to my other teammates who aren't white and give them opportunities to continue to raise their voice and um shed light on different perspectives that we have all right hola diana thank you for your time uh i spoke to you last year in vegas you and sue bird we were talking a okay. little bit about um just the, the opportunity missed when you have a league that is over 80 percent black women and also has a, a population that identifies as lgbtq queer um to utilize those voices mm -hmm. uh, we're almost a year out from that I'm curious um, if you think that things have changed, particularly thinking about that new CBA and now the Social Justice Council. I think everything's been changed in the last, you know, couple months. Everything's been turned upside down where, you know, uh, from the uncomfortable conversations to, you know, social action, um, there are things that we're just not willing to stay silent about anymore. And um, whether it's Black, Black Lives Matter, which is something that the league and uh, a lot of people in the WNBA support and will continue to support whether people don't like it. Um, you know, those are things that are, that are strongholds for us and we're not going to let go of those things. Um, you know, we made strides in a lot of different social areas and, you know, Black Lives Matter should have been number one from the beginning. And I think you, you see a lot of people stepping up in that role to make sure that uh, our voices are heard. And um, like I said, not everyone's going to like it. Some people are going to feel uncomfortable, but, you know, that's life. Uh, a lot of people in this country have felt uncomfortable for a long time already. 
So what I liked, again, in what Stewie was saying, she's talking about making space, right? Um, she talks a little bit about why she was asked on the council. I want to... Um, Diana said something, and she, again, is on point, as always, um, talking about how, you know, this is not new. This is how a lot of people in this country have felt. Um, Skylar Diggins has been a player, Skylar Diggins-Smith. On one of the media rounds, she was asked about the Social Justice Council, or she was asked, excuse me, about... Um, coming to the bubble and how she feels. And she said she feels conflicted. She feels conflicted about deciding to be away from her family. She would not get into, and she uh, flat out said something akin to, it's none of your business, as to how she came upon her decision to not bring her family into the bubble, uh, which she could have. What I think is interesting is even though, and it's tough to do these Zoom calls, to be honest, especially with a conversation like this, and not it's not all the time that the player can actually see us. And I personally would prefer if I could, be seen while asking questions like this. Um, I don't know. It's just preference of mine. But anyway, um, but Skylar did say she would be consistent with her messaging. Um, and so one of the things that she did, and I think this was on ESPN, but I'm going to read this from her Instagram. She wrote a letter that she then posted. Let me get his name because I think I really want you to look this up. I'll put a link in the description, but I, I want you to look this up because I read his post and it was very difficult. Vox Booker. Um, on July 4th, Mr. Booker, a civil rights activist, was enjoying the holiday weekend with friends at Lake Monroe in Bloomington, in Indiana. A group of white men told him that he was trespassing on private property. Mr. Booker left to avoid trouble, but later returned in an attempt to smooth things over. The group rewarded Mr. Booker's good faith by cornering and assaulting him, violently pinning him against a tree and threatening to lynch him. Uh, Skylar's uh, letter that she posted on Instagram ends with, Now more than ever, it is crucial that federal law enforcement entities show that they take racism seriously and stand on the same side as the Black Americans who face it every single day. Americans are watching only bringing the attackers to justice will honor their trust. Respectfully, Skylar Dickens-Smith. So Skylar, I don't think, is necessarily as comfortable uh, as some to talk about this in media availability, where she goes from asking, being asked questions about uh, her being on a new team to her family to social justice. I, I, I get the impression that that's just not what she's comfortable with. This is going to be complex, even in the WNBA, and, and that's why I wanted to make sure to make this video. A lot of people see the WNBA. The WNBA is doing this right. They're almost there in their 24th season. The WNBA is doing this right. They have a partnership with the NBA. The WNBA is doing this right. They have a social justice council. It's not that simple. None of that came easy, and even now that they have it, it's not easy. But what I give credit uh, to WNBA players, in particular in the last five years, I feel it's been more consistent with this crop of players, is that they have a unified voice, is that there is consistency, and that they stand firm on 
what they believe to be right. And I don't, I've never disagreed with them yet. When the league wanted to find them for wearing warm-up shirts that were not approved, the players went into their locker rooms, respective locker rooms, did media blackouts, and they also spoke to their rookies or other players and said, listen, we got you. If they find us, it will be taken care of. But this is what we're doing to the point where the league had to pivot and had to change. And that's what black women always do. And so going back to Angel City, a lot of people are wondering when and if and how and what it would look like to get a group of people behind the WNBA and a WNBA team the way that this group of, you know, I don't know, this is like 14 investors has gotten behind uh, U.S. soccer. And the short of it, the way I see it, is that the WNBA and USA Basketball has done a, negli- a negligent job of, of uh, marketing these players. And so have agents generally speaking, over the years. And so has media. That's how I feel. So how can, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, Meg Linehan's piece for The Athletic, link in the description. One of the investors was at a basketball game and was asked about the NWSL and didn't know anything about the NWSL. Knew about the World Cup, didn't know about the domestic league. The U.S. national team players for soccer have done a really good job from the last world two between the last two World Cups to build the market for the national team and the NWSL. I think that potentially the the initiative that Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi crafted up, you heard a little bit about that in the beginning of the show, could have potential to do that. But what also has to happen is that there's no generational celebrity in the WNBA. There's no, there's not enough players that have come from the WNBA that have remained in touch with the WNBA and that have enough wealth to give back um, or invest in the WNBA. So to set up the next social justice in women's basketball uh, show, I'm going to leave you with this clip from Diana Taurasi. It takes... It takes people, and we talk about women's basketball and women's soccer, and you're like, oh, why is it not popular? And you're like, well, where are the fucking rich females at? Yeah. Or just the rich people in general. That's what, like, no, rich like, females. No, 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 no. Rich females. Where are the rich okay, people? Okay, we, we talk about we're rich not. females for sure. But people discredit the 
the influence no. of of the systemic nature of like just rich individuals. So if no. we're talking about like Chelsea, where are the rich females, Megan? I no. agree. She wants women no. to support women. I totally agree. No, but like in just in general, like people are saying like, oh, the you know the system no. around men's soccer is like so robust and system around blah, blah blah. But it's like no, it's Roman Abramovich. It's like you know the shake that owns Man City. It's like, the, you know, the group that owns Liverpool. Yeah, they're men supporting men. And men Where supporting men, for sure. Part. But it's like, it's civic rich people. So, Where I do agree people? with you. I'm like, where's the rich women? Where are the well, rich where women? Where are the rich yeah. women with the passion for sport? Yeah, you know, with the passion for sport, exactly. There are women They'll be passionate about other shit. Yeah. With the passion for sport, but also, I'm like, this is a money-making opportunity. Like, sports in general is money-making. Like, period. People love to go fucking see sports. Like, yeah, maybe women's sports isn't where men's sports is right now, but it's only because we've lost investment. That's true. I'm, I'm, like, so di I'm so disappointed in the women that have a lot of money. And I'm going to be very, I'm, no, I'm going to be very simple-minded. Go ahead. Like, where are, the, where are the women with a lot of money yes. that want to that wanna invest in women's basketball, whatever it may be, as a fucking pro bono, whatever yeah. as a as a tax write-off no a, I'm like, okay. as a money-making opportunity there's money I, I know there's money, money. Like, well, i make money sue makes money penny makes money sometimes you invest in things that don't make money in, yeah. that you want to make better yeah. and i've done that with a lot of investments i think we, well women do it they just don't have a passion for support like it's no i know doing it That's in other things but it's like you need that one or 10 or 12 that yeah. love sport as well. The yeah. thing is, I feel like you need the initial one or 10 or 12 to like invest in it as like, okay, we believe in this, but like sport just in general is a money-making opportunity. Like we see that at every level. Like if you actually invest in women's sports, like it makes money, period. Like we know that. Like we all know like women make 80% of the purchases in the household. So isn't that like a marketing opportunity as well? Yeah, like, it's, well it's, so funny. it's funny, everyone's like, oh, do you want to be a coach? Do you want to be a GM? No. Do this? No, I want to fucking own it. Yeah, I want to own <laughs> it. I know and you don't want to rebound. Yeah, that's what it is. We don't want to rebound. You're not trying to rebound. Anywhere for millions of dollars, because I want to be an owner. I don't want to be a coach. I'm not doing drags. I'm not doing handoffs. <laughs> You're not trying to rebound. You know Just say it. Like me. I want to be the person who pays like Diana Taurasi. No, I love a drag. I love a drag. But I'm trying to own a team. That clip came from A Touch More, which was a YouTube series, a YouTube show, hosted by Sue Bird and Megan Rapino. You heard Diana Taurasi and her wife, Penny Taylor, speaking with Sue and Megan. And Diana and, and Megan had a difference of opinion on whether it should just be rich investors or rich women who should invest in, in this case, women's basketball. And you hear all of them talk about investors and it's 12 plus investors, a lot of them women who have stepped up for Angel City FC and the new Los Angeles team joining the NWSL. And women's basketball is waiting for that. Sounds like Diana is looking to be an owner sometime in the future. And will it be for women's basketball? Well, we've got this clip now, Diana, so we're going to hold you to your word. These are my thoughts. 
The reason that the WNBA doesn't have an investor group, and I think the Seattle Storm are probably the closest. It's a women's majority women owned team, and it is an investor group, right? The reason that women's basketball doesn't have that and that there aren't more women investing in women's sports, in particular women's basketball, like Diana Taurasi was just saying, my, my take is because it's black women. That's how I feel. Uh, and I think that marketing firms, companies, um, marketing professionals don't know how to market black women. Or they don't care to know. And so when Renee Hess of Black Girl Hockey Club tells people to hire more black women in particular, this is why she does that. Because there is an innate bias in our society as it exists. And it's been there since 1830. In 1970, Dorothy Height was talking about it. In 2019, Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi talked to me about it. And we're still talking about it today, one year later from my conversation with them. And we'll talk about it tomorrow and the next day and the next until we identify and own up to the fact that we have a society that is biased against black women and women of color in particular. We don't offer them jobs, even though they're one of the most educated groups in this country. So in some ways, that's given black women, women of color, but particularly black women, this route to education. And that would be great, except that educated black women do not make as much money as almost anyone, any other group. So when we talk about that intergenerational wealth, when we talk about wanting women to support women, it's usually going to be white women supporting other white women, unless they know what I'm telling you right now, which is that there is an inherent um, and for some an implicit bias against black and brown women, regardless of their education, uh, regardless of their wealth, if they can attain it. And that is why, this is my theory, we're not seeing partnership groups support women's basketball like we just saw with Angel City FC. But I really want to get into this because I think the WNBA, I'm really interested to see how white players are going to utilize their voice. Um, and I know that, and I've spoken to a few that say they want to listen and learn. Um, but I also think they need to be encouraged, just as anyone else in the WNBA, to find their voice. And I hope that that happens, um, because from what I know from history and my lived experience, unfortunately, there's a limit to how far, when it comes from a social movement to uh, policy and business practice, there's a limit to the access that Black women have. But when someone can, when black women can pass the baton in faith to other allies, that's when things get done. And that hasn't happened for the WNBA, generally speaking. Um, but it's time. It's time. All right. We're going to have more from the Wubble.
next time around. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Social Justice in Women's Basketball. And a special thank you to the women of the Burn It All Down podcast. I've been a big fan for a while, and I really appreciate them elevating other voices in sports. So thanks for listening. You can find the other episodes on Sports Talk with ELA on YouTube. Sports Talk ELA. Subscribe and set your notifications. Uh, usually they come out on Tuesday, Wednesdays. Thanks again. Have a great day.